Welcome to the Sacramental Charismatic. I'm your host, Luke Garrity, and on this podcast, I discuss topics related to the church, the Holy Spirit, mission, and how these subjects intersect within sacramentality. I'm a pastor theologian living in Northern California, and while I'm primarily discussing topics related to these themes and interviewing relevant voices, I'll also discuss whatever else I feel like because, well, this is my podcast. My website, LukeGarity.com, has plenty of blog articles for you to delve into, and I'd love to invite you to find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Let's go. Hey, welcome everybody to the podcast again, and I am super excited about this episode uh, because I'm sitting with my friend, Dr. Steve Bernhope, and uh, Steve is a pastor theologian. Uh, Actually, I guess I should call you a pastor and a theologian um, because you have a PhD in theology and you're living in England. Steve, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah, sure, Luke. No problem. So um, with my wife, Lynn, we are the senior pastors of a vineyard church in the UK in a place called Aylesbury. Any place you may have uh, come across uh, Aylesbury before is probably on a menu where they're talking about Aylesbury duck. That's what we're most famous for, even though, as far as I know, there aren't Mm. any ducks in Aylesbury. But (laughs) nonetheless, there is a vineyard church there. Um, It's not a particularly big town. 40,000 people, maybe something like that. And um, we've been leading the Vineyard Church there for about seven years now. It's quite a big church. Uh, We've got about 800 people on the database, and we have something like 400 to 500 people on a a Sunday, uh, or at least I should say used to. Obviously, uh, things are a bit Mm. different now with with COVID. But... uh, that's the kind of size of the church. We've got 16 staff, um, got a very th- thriving compassion ministry, which we call Storehouse. About a third of the staff are engaged uh, solely in that. And just to give you a feel, scale-wise, we are in the sort of top 10 size-wise of vineyard churches in UK and Ireland. Oh, that's amazing. And I've uh, had the the pleasure and honor of being with you all over there uh, on two different occasions, and you're a good friend, and uh, I mostly am friends with you, though, potentially to be friends with your wife, because your wife is amazing, um, <laughs> but I'm glad to glad to know you, and I guess we've known each other for, for oh, gosh, it's been at least eight years now, maybe getting close yeah. to 10, 10 or so. Yeah, probably is, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so I'm super grateful that you're taking the time to be on this podcast. Uh, this is episode two. Uh, just launched it, uh, called the Sacramental Charismatic, and uh, you know, as you you and I have talked a lot, uh, I'm trying to bridge the world between the charismatic uh, chaos and the sacramental <laughs> stream. Um, and so, you know, I guess before we jump into to talking a little bit about uh, topics related to theology and whatnot, I'd love to know just how how are things going over there in in uh, Aylesbury. Uh, you know, in relation to COVID-19, uh, I was actually supposed to be with you uh, less than a month ago. And, um, you know, that, that trip got postponed, not canceled, postponed. 
Um, you know, so how are you all handling COVID-19 and what's the church look like? You actually did a live stream on our churches. We had you as a guest live streamer, <laughs> which is kind of cool uh, that we can do that now. And you shared, uh, just kind of did a tour around the building right now. So it looks like you're still doing a lot of ministry and things like that. I'd love to know kind of, uh, yeah, how are, how are things going in the church? Yeah. Um, well, I guess church-wise, we're facing you know, all the same challenges that many other churches are facing um not least not being able to meet together in the in the standard ways i think um a couple of things about our situation one is that we were already quite well geared in relation to doing things like live streaming um mm-hmm. as you may recall luke we've um been live streaming our services for quite some time so we've got some um some understanding some, some we have all the gear and and so forth we have a uh, a guy on staff who's who specialized in that so in that way we were relatively well positioned um also in our compassion ministry our storehouse ministry which we've been focusing particularly in terms of the food bank and providing food for people in the in the current times normally we give free furniture and we give um household stuff as well we collect and deliver but that really is slightly on hold at the moment but instead of opening storehouse for food two days a week we've been opening six days a week mm. our number of people we've served has doubled or trebled we've been we've got 40 volunteers doing home deliveries for people who are self-isolating and the vulnerable and we've also had a we one of our staff team is a chef that's her role uh, uh, on staff is to be a chef catering manager and she and a number of volunteers have been cooking a lot of meals putting them in carry out containers freezing them and then giving those away as well. So using up all the fresh food that we're, we're being given. So there's a lot happening there and we are um, probably busier than ever in church Mm -hmm. terms overall, but particularly on, uh, from a storehouse standpoint. Yeah. That's, what's been remarkable about this, uh, I guess the world world situation is every pastor I know is way busier now than they were before and it's and it's and we're mostly working from home but yeah it's it's uh pretty amazing that that is the case uh in fact uh i don't know about you but when this all gets done it's going to be vacation time for me <laughs> for sure <laughs> like i just want to disconnect from technology and be able to enjoy enjoy something different than than uh than working so i think that's like a challenge right balancing yeah. um you know balancing needing to work and stay engaged, but also having the rhythms of Sabbath. And and so that's been kind of a challenge. I think I finally got into the rhythm last week, which was like, oh, this is amazing. So it's good to, good to hear that you guys are doing lots of great stuff. Well, let's switch gears. Um, you know, one of the goals of this podcast um, or purposes, I guess, is to provide thoughtful, biblical, theological reflection. Um, so I'd love to know why why you think that the church needs to be thoughtful and why we should take the life of the mind seriously and work hard against anti-intellectualism. You know, why, why do you think that it's important for us to, to, to think um, and to use our minds? And, and how does that fit into discipleship and worship? Well, I guess I'd, I'd start by saying that the, the idea that we have the options of intellectualism or non-intellectualism is a slightly false comparison because uh, it's the same idea as saying that you can have theology or no theology, or you can be a 
a Bible interpreter or not a Bible interpreter. Again, they're false distinctions because the reality is we are all theologians, right? So if you look at the origin of the word, theologos, words, God, uh, we all have words, we all have thoughts about God. The only question is where we're getting them from. We're all Bible interpreters. Every time we read anything at all in the Bible, we, whether we realize it or not, we are interpreting it. We are uh, seeing meaning in it, drawing meaning out of it, or telling people what it means, whether we're reading for ourselves or we're reading to teach uh, a small group or whatever. So I don't think that intellectual versus non-intellectual is really an option. The only question mm. is how well we're doing our thinking and whether we're actually interested in thinking more deeply so mm. it's really a question of you know how how deeply or how shallowly do we do we want to go in in what we're doing mm. so everybody's thinking yeah well, hopefully <laughs> you know yeah i mean um that they say that a worldview in other words how you see the world uh you know what what things uh contribute to you making sense of the world that you live in they say that a worldview is how we think about things without even realizing we're thinking about anything mm. and and that really is uh is true when we come to the bible as well every time we approach it we are thinking about it whether we realize it or not mm. that's good that's good why do you think uh you know we're both we're both charismatic um you know we both are part of a a movement or perhaps a denomination that uh, is in the charismatic stream. Uh, why do you think that, I, I guess what we would oftentimes call an anti-intellectual or maybe even an anti-theology, um, mm. why do you think that anti-intellectualism or anti-theology even, which is a theology as you just indicated, why do you mm. think that's such a prominent feature within a lot of the charismatic stream uh, of the church, you know, why, why do you think that that's, uh, you know, I guess, you know, common? Yeah. I mean, I think I'd start by saying that I don't think that it is a, a special problem in, in charismatic circles mm. because it, it exists just as much in what we might call fundamentalist circles, including mm. cessationists and, uh, and, and other non charismatic. So it, it isn't the, uh, I, th I don't think it's a particular problem for charismatics, but where, where the charismatic side of things has a slight edge, if you like, or maybe a slightly different inclination is because of the perceived role of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Uh, in other words, I don't need theology, in quotes, um, because I've got the Spirit, in quotes, and the Spirit can reveal truth to me. That's part of, part of his role is to reveal truth. And therefore, I can just rely on the Holy Spirit speaking to me through the Word um, in a way that um, somehow enables me to escape um, some of these intellectual traps. And one of the problems, of course, is that uh, many ordinary Christians, for reasons we can maybe go into, um, fear intellectualism. They fear intellectualizing faith away and that if you think too much about things then you're in danger of cutting out god or cutting out the holy spirit um mm. so they they, they, they put um uh, thinking and believing or faith and intellect at opposite ends of a spectrum and they find them yeah. difficult to bring together 
Yeah, so it's the tension is hard for them to keep or um, so in a sense, it's almost just lazy, laziness um, at the end of the day, right? It's Well, it's, yeah, I mean, one could say laziness and, and obviously for some people it, it may well be laziness, but I think it's also a genuine heartfelt fear mm. that, 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 that drives it. So, you know, it's not, you know, I wouldn't criticize people too much, but I would ask them to think through why they're feeling that way, why they have those instincts. Try and think it through. What's what's making them uh, respond in, in, in that way? It makes them afraid of the life of the mind. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, and I would then, if they if they list those things or they can come up with some of those things conversationally, um, I may I may well say I can see that, and that's a very good fear. That's a very reasonable concern. However, think about these things as well. And try and yeah. try and develop it rationally. Mm, that's good. I'm thinking, uh, you know, it's also, I think, relevant to acknowledge that early on within the, um, especially within the Pentecostal charismatic tradition and renewal in the early 1900s, um, both in North America and over across the pond, as they say, uh, Mm. it's interesting how a a lot of the early um, Holy Spirit people were leaving really rigorous theological traditions who had had you know every answer for every question ever, um, and and so in some ways I think what they what they seem to have um, identified was that there was a lot of theology and a lot of thoughtfulness that was used to actually um, undermine the actual Bible, right, the teachings of Ooh. Scripture, and to undermine putting those things into practice. Um, I mean, because if you think about um, you know, you and I both have engaged cessationism a little bit, and you know, it's when you really get down to it, it's so non-convincing anymore. And I think we see that because there's so few real cessationists these days. You know, John MacArthur's still holding out, and a few of a few <laughs> of his followers. But uh, but it is interesting how there's really complex theology that's done in order to um, undermine putting biblical theology into practice. And um, I think that's an interesting part too, right? Because um, there's this fear within charismatic circles that if we embrace theology, then we'll stop um, pursuing the life of the Spirit or we'll stop, you know, we'll stop speaking in tongues or prophesying or praying for healing. Um, How much do you think that that weighs into it too? Because I think that is obviously historically true, but Mm. do you Mm. think it still is pretty, pretty common? Uh, well, I mean, I th- there's there's a number of points there, Luke. I don't know if I can re- remember all of the all of the points you were making. Then I'll, I'll give it a go. But if we go back to the origins of Pentecostalism, it was a very grassroots uh, kind of movement. It wasn't an mm. intellectual movement, in quotes. Um, and I'm not seeking to, to be in any way disparaging about the origins of Pentecostalism, but it was an ordinary people mm-hmm. experience-led movement. And um, you know, and and some of the theological foundations, probably looking looking at it now, and I think Pentecostal um, theologians would would say this as well, um, involves some misreading of Scripture along the way. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, chronology of the Book of Acts in relation to the, the, yeah. the moves of the Holy Spirit. Um, equally, however if you come at it from a, a later sort of charismatic as opposed to Pentecostal direction, and you look, for example, a very good example would be the vineyard, where vineyard has always described itself starting with the word evangelical. 
starting with scripture, mm. starting with the traditions of the evangelical movement and yeah. the core beliefs of the evangelical movement, which was not, of course, a Holy Spirit movement in, in that sense to begin with. So Vineyard was marrying together a charismatic understanding that it drew from Pentecostalism mm. into an evangelical understanding, right? Mm-hmm. Hence the reason why uh, we talk about Vineyard as empowered evangelicals rather than Pentecostals or even charismatics. Yeah. Then you've got the MacArthur type stuff where um, it seems to me that um, the assumptions, the, the presuppositions that go into uh, his kind of cessationism are really quite hard to defend biblically. Yeah. So if one is wanting to be uh, a good conservative evangelical in one's hermeneutics, one's biblical interpretation, actually it's quite hard to sustain his cessationist views. Yeah. So uh, I I don't think that in in terms of um, being charismatic that, that there is an intellectual problem there. Uh, it seems to me that it is mm-hmm. equally feasible. And speaking as a charismatic and I <laughs> I guess an intellectual as well, I didn't see any any dichotomy in those yeah. two words being brought together. Yeah. Nor do I. I mean, I, that's, I think that's what is um, so important and when i part part of one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast is uh because i think that good theology actually sustains and empowers our charismatic uh theology practices right i mean um i i know i find the cessationist and it's interesting too because over the years i think i've actually been kind of following the 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 "Quote unquote cessationist, charismatic, continuationist arguments for probably twenty to twenty-five years now. I mean, I, when I was a teenager, I started engaging in them when I was like fifteen or sixteen with different friends that went to churches that didn't believe some of the things that I was experiencing. And uh, and it's interesting how the ball has been moved differently down the field, or the targets moving too. Right? I mean, it yeah. seems like more and more hardline cessationists are becoming more open but cautious, right? Because because exegetically, it's so hard to defend the old First Corinthians thirteen when that which is perfect comes, you know, quote unquote, the Bible. When clearly, contextually, it's the return of Jesus. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's uh, getting harder to defend things like that. So that's that's definitely, a, I think, a good point to make is that our good theology will actually play into our practices. Go ahead. Yeah, and and another point on that, I, I agree with all of that. Um, is that I guess. In recent decades, we have seen more scholars, more eminent scholars, mm-hmm. who personally come from a, a charismatic background, That's including right. some vineyard scholars. Yeah, and uh, I think that people like us would would say that just because we affirm a charismatic understanding and we have a charismatic um, faith. That doesn't mean that we endorse um, all of the nonsense that takes place within, <laughs> yeah. you know, within that world and under that heading. Yeah. Um, we're happy to call some of that out as being nonsense, and mm. um, you know, without I think without a fear of of uh, people saying that, that we are coming at it from a non-charismatic direction. So, yeah. unlike MacArthur, he may critique some of the things we would critique, but we will say. That it's not because there is no such thing as the the gifts of the spirit in, mm. in this present day. It's just because people are um, dealing with it uh, badly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
See, I knew deep down you're reformed. I mean, the reformed person inside of me wants to just go and confront them all. So <laughs> I knew it. Uh, for those of you who are listening or watching this, just to uh, to clarify, uh, Steve Burnhope is not reformed, and my reformed <laughs> my reformed training loves to tease him. So is that a good way to say it, Steve? You're not reformed. <laughs> I'm. I'm um... Way too, uh, way too modest to uh, say anything. <laughs> You'll take a pass. Uh, that's great. Uh, let me ask you one, one uh, question here, kind of related to what we're talking about um, in in relation to the anti intellectualism, and we're saying, hey, um, the life of the mind is a good place to to um, I guess both embrace and to feed. Um, what will help us? And I'm thinking about people who will be watching or listening to this, um, you know, running the gamut from being, you know, actual academic scholars uh, to pastors to, you know, just a normal mm. everyday person who follows Jesus, who attends a church, uh, mm. who's exploring some of these topics. What will help us um, to keep from being anti-intellectual, um, but also keep us from being, and I and I do not think that being intellectual equals arrogance, but I, but. I think it is true that in certain streams where intellectualism is encouraged and pursued more, there is a tendency at times for arrogance to to exemplify itself. What can what can we do to kind of, you know, keep those two tensions from overwhelming our our personal practices and experiences? Yeah, well, it, it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, I you know, speaking personally, I find it at times quite. Um, a challenge not to be arrogant, you know, and not to criticize people. Uh, and, you know, sometimes I think, well, that's a very stupid way of thinking or a stupid thing to say. And, and I have to, you know, check myself and, and you know, and kind of you know, repent of, of those attitudes because it is quite easy to do that. So I understand that. Um, I guess what we shouldn't be doing is throwing stones at each other. I think mm. the those who are minded to, be wary or, or concerned about over-intellectualizing, need to understand their own fears and what, well, why are they feeling that way, why are they thinking that way. Not to expect people in, in churches to be intellectual or, or um, criticize them because they're not intellectual. I mean, you know, find your level and be comfortable with your level. But that those, by and large, those aren't the people I'm concerned about. By and large, the people I'm concerned about is those who are thinkers, who have um, good good ways of thinking, maybe quite well educated, but who have been told or, or made to feel as if they're not allowed to have questions. Mm. And they have to just have faith or just believe or, you know, the kind of typical thing that gets said is, well, we shall never understand those things. If we could understand them, we would be God. You know, mm. you mustn't let your head get in the way of your heart and these kind of catchphrases yeah. you come across those um yeah and, and that bothers me because firstly i don't think that christianity is in any danger from good people with good attitudes asking good questions mm. secondly i don't think that god is uh, on the defensive for yeah. us having good questions i mean mm. i think he can answer good questions don't you i think he's got yeah. good answers to good That's questions right. So why wouldn't he want us to play our part in trying to uh, help to be a conduit to those good answers that clearly exist? 
Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean we can explain everything. It's not. This is not about you know, kind of uh, resurrecting modernity's uh, epistemology. You, know, you yeah. don't have to have a foundational answer to every single question. Mm. And indeed, I think a bit more modesty um, in saying, actually, we don't really understand this very well, or we can't actually provide great answers to this. COVID, you know, maybe being a current example mm. of that. That's no, no big deal. What's the problem with that? And of course, mm. in postmodernity, one is allowed to say, "Yeah, there are some mysteries here. We don't understand some of these things." Yeah, that reminds me when I was in uh, in my undergrad doing theology, stu studying theology, mind you. Okay, so take note of that. And I was in a systematic theology class, and um, you know, I was probably I don't know nineteen, twenty. It might have been my second year of uh, of school, and I just was really. Um, curious about a lot of theological stuff, I guess. And I was, it was in a Pentecostal uh, university. And I remember uh, quite often asking questions, you know, and I think I, every day I always, hey, I got a question about that. And a lot of it was about um, Pentecostal theology um, in general, you know, initial evidence and things like that. And I was really trying to wrestle with what, what, uh, what the Bible taught and what I should believe. And I remember my professor um, at one time told me I asked too many questions. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I just remember like, oh, that's a peculiar thing to say uh, in relation to this whole studying theology thing. So I yeah. love what you're saying there just about how we shouldn't be afraid of questions. And I think oftentimes it's possible that um, church leaders when they um, discourage that, it actually reveals more. Well, it does. It reveals more about them and their insecurities than it does about their fears of that person, you know, needing to not ask those questions. So I think what you just shared was really, really helpful for us. Yeah, and I think also, Luke, that, I mean, just to, you know, a, a, an obvious scripture that we probably all know, um, when um, Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, you know, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. And we're, we're used to that as charismatics, um, mm. but also with our mind. Now, how do you love the Lord your God with your mind? Well, one way of doing it is to think about stuff, right? I can't, yeah. I can't imagine how else we do that unless it's thinking about stuff. Mm. And uh, I, I think, I think that, that God actually likes it when we've got questions. I think he, he made us to be inquisitive people. He made us to be people who like to learn and discover and think mm. things through and you know if people hadn't done that in in the past it, you know if the church fathers hadn't done that we wouldn't have the creeds you know that's they right. were thinking stuff through right you're listening to the sacramental charismatic in addition to this podcast, I have a fairly active YouTube channel where I create theological content for pastors, churches, and normal everyday followers of Jesus. As you can probably imagine, creating content like this has a number of costs associated with it. In addition to the various pieces of equipment and software that are needed, there are costs related to hosting and other administrative needs. Would you consider supporting this podcast? For just $5 a month, you could help me continue creating these resources. Simply click my Patreon account in the description from this podcast. Thank you so much. And now let's get back to our podcast.
All right, we're going to switch gears here now, and we're going to talk a little bit about the subject of hermeneutics. Steve, uh, you did your master's degree with distinction, I might add, and whoever does a master's degree with distinction, oh, did I? Yes, I did. Whoever does one with distinction is clearly a superior being. Uh, <laughs> see previous comments about arrogance. Uh, but you also did your PhD uh, at um, at King's College in, in London, I believe. And uh, so you've done a lot of thinking about hermeneutics, and I'd love to talk about, about the subject of hermeneutics with you for a little bit um, and kind of get into some more issues related to the charismatic and the sacramental world. Um, but for any of our listeners who may be unfamiliar with the word hermeneutics, it's kind of a scary word for some people. What is hermeneutics and why does it matter? <clears throat> yeah, so hermeneutics, very simply, is the art and, and science, art and or science, of biblical interpretation. It's how we go about understanding the Bible, um, which is why I would say, of course, that everyone, everyone does it. You know, there is no interpretation-free way of just reading. Every time we read the Bible, whatever it is we're reading, we are doing interpreting in, in some fashion. There's no uh, pure way of reading the Bible that doesn't require interpretation. So the only question is uh, how we're going about it, basically. Mm. So it matters because everybody's doing it, and the question becomes, are we doing it well? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So one thing I've appreciated about the sacramental world, um, you know, my, my history is I grew up uh, in mostly charismatic slash evangelical-ish world, um, you know, traditions, and uh, and then started exploring sacramentality and the sacramental traditions, probably in my, um, in my you know, my seminary, my MDiv, kind of thinking about, you know, oh, like there's these things called sacraments, and how does that, <laughs> what does that have to do with the church? Because mm. uh, sadly, I hadn't had a lot of uh, teaching or emphasis on that mm. previous to that, but uh, I owe a huge amount of, um, I guess, uh, thankfulness to a theologian by the name of Hans Boersma, uh, who's, I believe, at Regent in Vancouver, or was at one time, and he wrote a book called Heavenly Participation, uh, The Weaving of Sacramental, Sacramental Tapestry. And I think that there's, um, in that book and in a lot of sacramental tradition uh, thinking, there is a lot of encouragement toward thoughtfulness. There's a lot of complex theology that's happening there. And a lot of creativity. Uh, I think there's a lot of theological imagination, but I've noticed that it seems like it's always rooted in in Western reason. Um, it's it's rooted in logical frameworks, um, and so I've really appreciated that because I think that sacramental theology has actually caused me to be more thoughtful. And I'd love to know what's encouraged your thoughtfulness when it comes to reading the Bible, besides being British. <laughs> besides being british yeah um in addition to that yeah i i mean i think in part it's um a, a kind of a reaction against the slightly intellectual anti-intellectual um charismatic thinking of my early days as a christian so i came to academic theology relatively later in life it wasn't something i did straight out of school and, and so on so um, a lot of my uh, quest to understand better, uh, to, to get more, more theological awareness, to think more theologically, was driven by the fact that a lot of the 
charismatic uh, practices uh, and the, the frameworks of thinking that came with that world uh, were not persuasive to me. I, they were getting, I was getting more and more disillusioned with them mm. and increasingly saying some of this stuff is just complete nonsense. <laughs> and, uh, and yet my faith, my trust always told me that there were better answers, that, that, that it didn't have to be this way including within a charismatic framework of understanding. Uh, but I just need to find out what those answers were. So um, mm. my interest, for example, in, in reading the Bible uh, became increasingly not just proof texting, not just taking individual verses out of context and using them to prove something or, mm -hmm. to, or to make an argument about something, but to actually begin to think about uh, simple things like context and mm. You know, what did they mean originally? And how does what they meant originally to the original audience and the original writers, uh, how does that relate to what they mean to me today? Mm. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So you're talking about um, the author's intention and the historical grammatical uh, way of reading the Bible there, right? I mean, actually spending some time to understand when uh, when John uses the word logos or logos, um, you know, what does he what does he mean by that, and what is the underlying historical background in in that language? I mean, like, there's a lot of work that's been done on that, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. Because yeah, because of I think it's what they say the the history of Heraclitus um, in the you know the uh, Greco Roman philosophy of his day. So Paul uh, John's use of that word is really particular, and there's a there's a helpful way of understanding it. Um, you know, so the historical grammatical reading I think is really important as you're saying um but moving on from like oh, okay that meant that then how do you get to well this is how it applies today like what do you do to to do that well i think if i just sort of back up a little bit on that question mm -hmm. um not not to evade it but just to, to add a bit of background <laughs> to it um Context is uh, a complex thing. There's, there are multiple layers and levels of mm. context. So context isn't just a, a word within a verse or a verse within mm. a paragraph, a chapter, a book, mm. and so on. There are other levels of context as well. So, for example, um, what was happening to these people at the time mm. when this was written or these events were taking place? If mm. it was written later than what was happening in the times when it was written as well as the times that it was writing about mm -hmm. how did those people see the world um, what influences were were upon them I and mean, if we think about the ways in which uh, covid19 is affecting us at the moment the way people are writing articles the way people are doing blogs mm -hmm. and so on is very different than two months ago if, yeah, I mean, just the way we talk about ecclesiology right now, right, has completely, well, yeah. it's, Absolutely. Yeah, it's Absolutely. very so, fascinating. Hmm. And, and, and yet one of the things about the biblical contexts is that because the original writers and their original audiences were familiar with them, they didn't necessarily tell us what those were. Hmm. Okay, so we've talked about, we've mentioned COVID-19 a couple of times, um, but we didn't need to because we all know what's going on, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, the fact that we are doing this as we are rather than in person 
and mm-hmm. that I'm in my study at home. Uh, I guess you are too. We're not even in the church buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't need to tell each other that. We don't need to tell anyone else that. It's obvious because that context is taken for granted. And yeah. there are plenty of things that are taken for granted in Scripture that we need to actually give a little bit of thought to. We may not be able to pin them all down because there's a long distance between us and the text, but mm. we need to at least give some thought to some of those things. And yeah. if not, take them into account, at least rule them out in some way. Mm-hmm. And yet the pro- one of the problems, Luke, as you, as you know, is that because of what we already bring to the text in terms of our presuppositions mm-hmm. and the stuff we think we already know, which may or mm-hmm. may not be right, we we don't necessarily ask the questions we could ask or should ask. Uh, we yeah. just go straight to the text and straight to a contemporary application. So there's a tendency to copy and paste from mm-hmm. then into now without yeah. any steps in between. Yeah. So that's kind of what I'm getting at, because um, you're talking about the contextual layers, right? Um, the yeah. social, rhetorical, I think um, yep. ben, With- ben Witherington, a lot of the ben Asbury yeah. School yeah, sure. folks have, have talked a lot about that. Uh, and, and actually, um, this kind of leads us into, uh, I think it was probably, I don't know, 2014, 2015, I chaired a Society for Vineyard Scholars' panel that you were a part of on... Uh, on developing a five-step yeah. um, hermeneutic, right? A, a five-step yeah. model for reading yeah. scripture, and I'm and I'm trying to remember, but I feel like um, one of the thing, one of the steps you had was reading it through a Christological lens. Um, I, I feel like there were certain things that you kind of developed that would help us pay mm. attention to those different contextual layers but would help us get to application without skipping the process, but would also be very much a big picture way of understanding the kingdom yeah. and and uh, and God. So, yeah. um, and I think like, you know, the British theologian uh, Anthony Thistleton, you know, has written a lot on bridging those horizons, right? From the ancient horizon to the current horizon. There you go. <laughs> you have the book right there. Uh, are you just reading sections of that book to me? Is that what you're, <laughs> what you're doing in all your answers? Uh, <laughs> I think but, Anthony would be very upset to hear that. <laughs> yeah, but I would I would be curious, um, you know, assuming that a person is taking the time to be aware of the the um, ancient cultural context, um, the author's intention, um, you know, and not wanting to just copy and paste because I think a, like a very common example I use is people take the text, uh, take numerous texts from the Old Testament that were written to ancient Israel in a very different cultural context and political situation than what we have here in America and then apply it to America. Um, And I oftentimes find myself reminding people like, hey, that is not actually applicable to us um, for numerous reasons. Mm. and so wanting to be aware of that, but how do we still get to the point where we are applying, you know, like kind of kind of avoiding yeah. avoiding going from verse right to our life, you know, like, oh, this is about me and my warm fuzzies today. But how do you get to the point where you can safely start thinking about application? And are there some yeah. rules that you use? Yeah, I mean, there are uh, numerous uh, rules, or there are at least some different ways you can approach the question. Uh, For example, you were just talking about Old Testament um, and taking Old Testament from then to now. 
And we, we firstly have to do an intermediate step, which is to say, to what extent does stuff in the Old Testament um, come through the New Testament, come through Jesus, and remain in place? Or to what extent mm. is it modified? Um, and, and that in itself is hermeneutics. You know, that in itself is trying yeah. to find um, the correct um, process, the correct approach to taking stuff from the Old Testament through the New Testament into now. Mm. And that, that's a starting point. Um, the, 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 I think that maybe I'm jumping too far forward on this, but let, let's just go there and maybe back up if we need to. I think that very often charismatics in particular confuse the idea of the meaning of a text with something that the Holy Spirit is saying to me meaningfully through that text. Mm. The difference between meaning and meaningful or meaningfulness. So, for example, mm. I, I don't personally have any difficulty with the idea that a, a, a dynamic God, a dynamic Holy Spirit can speak to us through a text in a mm. way that is not necessarily consistent uh, conforming to the meaning of that text, provided that we are testing that in in the other ways, in the right ways, which I personally would say is to be tested in accordance with our biblical theology. Mm. In other words, we follow a, a classic Reformed way of thinking in allowing the whole of Scripture to mm. speak to us in relation to the meaning of any Scripture. Okay. So that makes that makes sense, um, and I'm thinking maybe that helps us get to the question about the Holy Spirit's role in hermeneutics. Um, yeah. Because yeah. a question I wanted to ask you is, can we read the Bible like the apostles? And let me set that up a little bit for our listeners or viewers. Um, it's interesting when you start when you start doing exegesis in seminary, at least, and you start reading texts, and you're being encouraged to read them in context and you start to realize as you are engaging in the book of Acts, as well as in the epistles, that the apostles do not always um, honor the original intention of the Old Testament authors. <laughs> in fact, it seems as if the Apostle Paul is, is, um, is creative, and um, I think, you know, the, the clearest... Uh, the clearest example would be uh, in Galatians when he uses um, uses the Old Testament and he and he does a he does a I guess a really theological reading uh, to to put it you know safely it's very an, uh, it's, it's allegorical he uses an allegory um, uh, which is not there in the original text you know so I've always kind of wanted to know um, how do you how do you think about about uh, us interpreting the Bible like the apostles. Because it seems like they follow a certain set of guidelines, though, because they all of their readings are either Christological or what Peter Enns would call Christotelos. Um, you know, they have a they have some way of honoring Jesus or showing how Jesus is the consummate um, fulfillment of that promise, even though the ancient authors didn't quite see that. And I think like the Book of Hebrews even kind of gives us the theological underpinnings of why that's okay 
Um, right, right. Uh, because he's better than everything in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus, that is. Um, but you know, so how do you how do you think about that um, when you think about the role of the Holy Spirit and us interpreting the Bible? Uh, can we also be creative? And how does that fit into? I love when I mean, you and I have talked about this before. How does this fit into you know the ancient author's meaning and then it being meaningful to us today? What, how would you kind of? I know it's a lot, a lot of different ideas to unpack there, but I'd love to know like some of your random thoughts that are all probably logically put together because you're British. Yeah, with that with the case, Luke. Um, okay, a lot of lot of interesting stuff you touch on there. Um, in terms of the way the New Testament authors um, quote from, read, uh, apply the uh, the Old Testament, um, I think we have to allow for the fact that some of them would probably have got quite low marks in some of their uh, exegesis classes in seminary. Um, I mean, putting put it more seriously, um, they certainly, at times, use the Old Testament in ways that we would probably say uh, are questionable if, if, if we were talking to people who were doing that today. Mm. Uh, clearly, I'm not saying they were wrong. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. What I'm saying is I think that they were reading in a way that, it, that would be problematic if we were doing it all the time. Um, there are some other aspects to come into it as well. I think at times they were quoting in ways that were not word for word. Bear in mind that they were probably having to work from memory very often. They couldn't mm-hmm. just Google it or, you know, look at look uh, in the back of the Bible in a, a concordance or whatever. So we've got to give them a bit of cut them a bit of slack there. And also they would probably in virtually every case have been working from the Greek translation of the Old Testament as well. So, again, some variations in the way that that would have read. Um, and indeed, some of the versions of that that would have been around may have framed some of those verses a bit differently. Um, another aspect, I think, which may be slightly different question, but um, another aspect would be the audience for what they were saying. So, for example, for example you mentioned Galatians, okay? Mm-hmm. Interesting example because of the focus on the law in Galatians and what Paul was saying or not saying about the law. So depending on which theory one subscribes to in terms of the composition of the church or churches that he was writing to in Galatians, if it was a, uh, an exclusively or predominantly Gentile congregation, then one can read what Paul is saying about the law differently than if it was predominantly a Jewish congregation. Mm. So depending on whether you subscribe to the uh, North Galatian theory or not, yeah. personally, I think in virtually every case, Paul was writing either to a Gentile church or a predominantly Gentile church, and especially so in Galatians. Mm-hmm. So that will impact the way I read it and the things he's saying about stuff in the Old Testament. Mm if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So context comes back into that, even where mm-hmm. we're talking about how Paul or whomever is using uh, Old Testament texts. Mm, that's good. So how do you see the Spirit uh, involved in you and I personally reading the Bible? Well, again, I would uh, come back to this uh, distinction that I'm wanting to offer, and, and admittedly there are some overlap, but... Uh, to try to sort of uh, keep it 
clear and simple this difference between meaning and meaningfulness mm, okay so um mm. to talk about the meaning of a text uh we're working in a historical critical kind of sense we're working at the way that text was intended by the author the author's intent authorial intent and how it would have been understood and heard by the author's audience gotcha. clearly we're you know we're thousands of years away from that so mm -hmm. we can only ever take a reasonable stab at it context will help us with that literary mm. um understanding will help us with that and so on social rhetorical and so on but we're taking a stab at it i don't think we should be going too far from that meaning mm -hmm. as we can best understand it when we talk about application today I think we can say there are parallels. In other words, what what David found to be true when he authored a psalm can be true for us as well in the exact same way. Mm. God is as faithful is true then and true now. There's there's mm -hmm. not much of a step there between the two. It's when we start to um, credit the Holy Spirit with interpretations of meaning, mm -hmm. or we're using bad hermeneutics to get there. Mm. I think we're beginning to get ourselves into a little bit of trouble, and and the classic okay. for that would be a would be a proof text. Mm -hmm. If we want to use a proof text to say that something, to prove something, or, or to make an assertion of truth today, I think it's got to be consistent either with the original meaning of that text, as best we can figure it out, or it's got to be consistent with what Scripture says as a whole. If we're going to go beyond that, then we're outside of the boundaries of meaning and we're into meaningfulness. Mm -hmm. now, can, I, can I give you a quick example of that? Yeah, yeah, please the, do. The shortest verse in the Bible, mm. which you know to be what? What's the shortest verse in the Bible? I believe it's Jesus wept. Exactly. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus wept? Well, we know that mm. it's Jesus that we're talking about mm -hmm. and that he wept. He cried tears. Okay, that's the meaning of it. But God may speak meaningfully to me through that when I read mm -hmm. that, and, and the Holy Spirit may say to me, you know, Steve, you don't cry very much, do you? Why don't you cry very much? So I then have an argument with God and say, well, it's because I'm my personality type or mm -hmm. whatever. You know? And then he'll say, well, maybe you know, Jesus cried and I cry. You know, I cry over the, the sake of, uh, of the, the, the condition of this world. I, I, I cry over the suffering of people. Oh, wow. Maybe, Lord, you're speaking to me about the fact that I should cry more. I should, you know, if Jesus could weep, what were the things that caused him to weep? We know what it was in that case. But, mm. you know, maybe I should be a person who weeps more. So God is speaking to me meaningfully through that very, very short little verse. But... Um, I don't think that that is what that verse was saying. I don't think the original audience would have read that as saying, you should be people who weep more, says yeah. the Lord. Mm -hmm. That's good. That makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> I think it's really helpful uh, to, to toward us, um, I think, trying to be faithful to Scripture, honoring God's revealed word to us, as well as allowing Scripture to... Um, to have application, but also to, I love that word meaningful. I, mean, I think that's a really helpful way. Uh, and, and just for any of those who are 
listening or watching, um, you know, I think in the sacramental tradition, um, in the liturgical circles, the um, Lectio Divina way of reading the Bible would actually be really similar to that. Would in- I think from my understanding would encourage all of those things too, because it's seeking um, more of the meaningfulness of a text and how it engages us. Um, I, I love how uh, I think Ruth Haley Barton talks about not just reading scripture, but allowing scripture to read us, um, mm-hmm. you know, and to, to come back to us. So that's really helpful. Hey, thanks again for listening. Would you please consider sharing this podcast with your friends or anyone who you think may be interested in exploring the intersection between ecclesiology, pneumatology, and missiology? If you know someone who loves reflecting on the Bible and theology, this podcast may be a great resource for them. Make sure to check out my Facebook page, follow me on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Thank you so much. Okay, Steve. Um, so sacramentality, I think, can be described as, I think it's safe to describe it as a theological lens. Um, and it kind of essentially views the world through a lens that sees God's unique graces via the Spirit um, at work in transformative ways. Um, it's a huge emphasis within the sacramental tradition about the mystery and presence of, of the Holy Spirit. Um, so how do you feel about hermeneutical lenses? Because you've kind of hinted that we all have, um, we're all reading the scripture in a subjective way, right? We bring our lenses, so to speak. Uh, but there are certain theological traditions that are very vocally, um, they, they advocate their lenses. I'm thinking of dispensationalism, right? Where dispensationalists yeah. will will say, this is the lens you need to read the Bible with. There's seven uh, you know, ways that God has interacted with human beings, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you and I are both not dispensationalists. Thank God. Sorry to all dispensationalists watching and reading or uh, viewing this. But, uh, you know, I guess my question is, how do you feel about hermeneutical lenses? And then do you personally employ um, some lenses? Um, I, I want to flesh that out because I think you do employ some theological lenses, right? Because when you read the Bible, you read the Bible through the lens of God is love, or Christologically. So talk to me a little bit about that and give us some reasons um, to do that and maybe even some some uh, resources to pull from that would help us do that better. Yeah, well, I think um, you've probably lost all of the dispensationalists from the audience at this point, Luke. Um, I'm so, so sad. Yeah, <laughs> viewing numbers so have sad. plummeted. Um, so sad. Those charismatic dispensationalists have a lot to offer. Have a lot to offer. <laughs> Yeah, so I suppose that um, the main thing about having a hermeneutical lens or lenses is to try to be aware of what those are. We all have them, right? Uh, we, no, there's no such thing as pure objectivity of any kind. We all have them. And some of them come from our Christian background, mm. uh, what uh, John Mumford in the Vineyard used to call our PCE, our prior Christian experience. And some of them come from our worldview. So for us, some of it would come from our British background, our educational background. For you, it would be being American and being in a US context and so on. 
we would both be influenced by capitalist ways of thinking to some degree our politics whether that's to the left or the right would influence our reading and so on all kinds of things that influence our reading whether we're male female uh, and, and so on education levels all sorts of things so the starting point for hermeneutical lenses is to be aware of those that we bring with us the baggage that we bring with us and as far as we can to try to ask ourselves to what extent those are influencing our thinking when we read mm. a passage simple example um everybody every christian has a view on the pharisees mm. everyone has used the, t the word pharisee uh, or pharisaical some derivation of that and generally we don't we, we don't mean anything particularly polite by it uh, i had reason <laughs> a week or two ago to look it up in a dictionary and it was all about bigoted hi hypocrites uh, that's mm -hmm. the way the word is used so as soon as we read jesus engaging with a pharisee um, even if it's a pharisee that that believes in jesus a jesus following pharisee because of course there mm -hmm. were many who yeah jesus followers um we already think we know what that means and we already mm. read that in to the conversation maybe rightly but that we, we bring that with us yeah now just switching gear slightly back to the, the core of your question um i think a good example of how we should be reading the scripture a good example of a hermeneutical lens and this is one you alluded to a while ago when you talked about the five-step model that, that we were debating in in that society vineyard scholars conference a christological hermeneutical lens is saying we need to be reading scripture through a jesus-centered lens in other mm. words if jesus is the exact image of the invisible god if all of the fullness of god bodily dwells in him dwelt in him then he is our, our best representation, our perfect representation of what God is like in human context, in human mm -hmm. form. So I place a, personally place a very high value on Jesus' nature, character, what the stories tell us about, uh, how he thought not just about the things he spoke about, but also the things he didn't speak about, but where one could imagine he would have said the same sorts of things about similar questions and similar issues and clearly the um the material that the evangelists the, the the writers of the gospels chose to assemble and how they chose to present it uh, the bits that they chose to include were clearly the things that they thought were really important and i would say that they felt those were important because they wanted to give us the best possible representation of jesus meaning the best possible representation of the god that we see in jesus so that would be why i would give a very high value to a christological reading of scripture that's good so that's kind of a um the model uh or i guess the lens that you primarily would lean into that's like your number one well um <laughs> Like any uh, theologian, Luke, I would never say there was just one or even necessarily a primary one, but certainly that would be. I just want. High I want to pin you down. I want to pin you down. Well, let me give you another one, um, that, which would be uh, a pneumatological one. So mm. the, the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, you see, that's quite interesting because I read the Holy Spirit through a Christological lens as well. 
Mm, yeah. Let me let me explain that a little bit. So, I I am always astonished at the way in which charismatic Christians, in particular, Pentecostal Christians for that matter, um, sometimes speak and act as if the Holy Spirit is the weird one of the Trinity, mm. and that anything could happen. You know, anything anything could happen uh, when the Holy Spirit's around. And I find that a little odd because one would never have said that anything could happen when Jesus was around. We we can take a view on what Jesus would would have said and done from the things that he did say and do. And mm-hmm. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. When we see one um, in, in the Scripture, we see all three in Scripture. They 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 work together. We can't separate them. We can't say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit. Would, would do it this way, Jesus would do it the other way. They, they are one. And as you know, the Holy Spirit's even spoken of at times as the Spirit of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So we can't really uh, put a, uh, a sheet of, of, of paper between them. They are, they are one. And yeah. therefore, I think it's reasonable to say that to the extent that we can't envisage Jesus doing something, we probably uh, should not be crediting the Holy Spirit with doing something. Mm. That sounds uh, really similar. Well, it's, you know, moving into a Trinitarian way of reading the Bible, right? And, and Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, that is that yeah. is a Trinitarian way of reading the Bible, quite frankly. That's, that's really helpful. Um, well, let's switch gears here a little bit. Um, you know, we've talked about uh, hermeneutics a lot, and I'm super thankful that you would take the time as a as a specialist on the subject of, of hermeneutics, uh, but your dissertation for your PhD, actually, I guess over there, you call them theses, 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 um, because I wrote a dissertation because I did an MA in the UK, and I, I'm always having to explain, no, it was not a doctoral dissertation. It was basically a thesis. Uh, you, you've flipped it around. So you wrote your thesis uh, for your doctoral uh, degree for your PhD uh, on the subject of the the atonement. Um, and so your book, you actually have a published version of it, and it's called Atonement and the New Perspective, subtitle The God of Israel, Covenant, and the Cross. And I've read the book. I'm actually um, currently um, working through sections of it again, uh, as I've been thinking a lot of the atonement on this project that you and I have both kind of been loosely talking about uh, in the vineyard. Um, and so I'd love to have you maybe tell us a little bit about your book. Um, you know, what's the, what's the main gist of it? Okay, well, uh, interestingly enough, uh, you were talking about dissertations. Um, the, the last piece of my master's degree was uh, a dissertation, as we call it in that context, and was on the atonement. And that was because I had a choice of subjects. And uh, I always... The, the, the atonement had always fascinated me from the very beginning, sort of from the age of 16 when I became a Christian. I never really quite could understand how there was any uh, logical connection between the death of Jesus on the cross and that making me, allowing me to be at one with God. I just never got it. And mm. uh, every explanation I, I heard didn't really work for me. I was I was very happy with the idea that it had made it possible and that I could mm-hmm. um, be in relationship with God through what Jesus had done. But the how question was one that I never really uh, could figure out. 
So I was very keen to study it and and to do my dissertation on it. And uh, it was really uh, the, the, where I left off with that dissertation that I started from in relation to my, my PhD thesis, which became the book. That's great. So um, tell me about, you know, so the books, um, I guess, getting to the question of how, would you say that is, um, that's a feature of it, but it's also interacting with uh, this this new perspective stuff. So for theology nerds and Bible theology people, new perspectives obviously been, you know, forefront to theological debate for, well, it's been quite prominent in the last 10 to 15 years, but it's actually been uh, taking place in the since the 70s, as I understand, yeah. you know, the influence of E.P. Sanders and a host of other uh, other biblical scholars, um, yep. some who are who are Christians and some who are not. And, uh, and it's been, right, <laughs> I just just being honest there, uh, I've read a lot of those, <laughs> and sometimes the, the uh, that came through. But, uh, you know, so for someone who is like, I have no idea with new perspective, we don't need to have a new perspective, we need to have an old perspective, the Bible perspective, uh, or somebody who just has no idea what that is, you know, can you really briefly give us, um, what is the new perspective, and what's it about? Um, you know, because I think like, you know, a lot of our listeners probably are familiar with N.T. Wright, and N.T. Wright has had a huge amount of uh, of influence amongst the new perspective, but also has done a lot of work on that. So tell us, what is the new perspective and why does it matter? Yeah, so um, you, as you rightly say, N.T. Wright's probably the best known of the new perspective scholars, as it were. And he was one of the earliest uh, after E.P. Sanders and, and, and a few of those guys. Um, one of the earliest in terms of um, uh, bringing new perspective awareness into the ordinary Christian world, the, the popular mm -hmm. Christian world. So the new perspective, um, the full title generally is the new perspective on Paul. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it's more of a new perspective on first century Judaism, or to give it its mm -hmm. correct title, Second Temple Judaism. So that's... yeah period of Judaism from about a couple of hundred years before Jesus to about a hundred years after. Mm -hmm. And the new perspective basically is a scholarly um, research, which uh, looks in particular at um, research materials, documents from the period in question, which had not really been either known about before or not being, not, not having been read before in the, in the same way primary sources a lot of the um, assumptions about the nature of judaism in that second temple first century period were derived secondarily from what others had said so scholars in the 19th century for example what they had said about those uh, those conditions at the time judaism at the time had been what everyone had assumed in the 20th century uh, onwards and going back to that original literature uh, people like E.P. Sanders were saying well hold on this isn't what it says at all this is not as we had, have been told and uh, the uh, basic discovery I guess in a nutshell is that however right uh, the reformers view Calvin and Luther's view of what God was saying to them through Galatians and, and Romans and what Paul had to say about the law, 
mm-hmm. uh, may have been very much God speaking to them, but isn't the same thing as what uh, Paul was saying in Galatians and Romans in his original context. Mm. Uh, I may need to unpack that a bit more. But basically, in a nutshell, the new perspective is saying we have got the first century Judaism that we've grown up with wrong. Mm-hmm. So um, maybe to, to give some um, common, uh, common layperson understanding to that, would it say, be safe to say that um, one of the concerns of N.T. Wright and then other new perspective advocates or people just interacting with that would say that the type of Paul, um, uh, or, or actually I guess the Jews that Paul is said to have been interacting with in, for instance, Galatians or Romans, um, we've actually misunderstood and we've been we've been actually interacting with a Judaism that was created by the 1500s uh, reformers and that we actually need to ask questions about what Judaism actually believed in the first century in order to properly understand what Paul is interacting with. Is that a fair way to yeah. summarize that? Yeah, that's a much so it's actually, way of putting it. It's, so it's actually, well, I mean, so it's actually just more about doing, it's actually historic, it's doing history, right? Like we're actually doing exegesis in a, in a, if we're concerned with the author's intention, it's asking questions about the original audience. Uh, by the way, I just want yeah. to mention, um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I was going to say that, 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 that actually this, what, what they're doing, what these guys have been doing is classic um, uh, historical critical work. You yeah. know, this yeah. is not some sort of weird, wonderful idea, they've fanciful idea they've come up with. They're working from the uh, primary sources, from the original mm-hmm. materials, reading them in the original languages, looking at them saying, this is, this is not the way we've, we've grown up, uh, you know, the way we've been told. Uh, this is yeah, not yeah. consistent um, with what we were told in the, you know, 18th, 19th century. Yeah, yeah. So essentially what they discovered by reading uh, primary sources from Jewish authors who were writing around the time of, of Jesus and Paul is that a lot of their ideas were not um, nearly as, um, I guess, as, uh, as were de- being defined by the reformers, correct? Like the way that, yeah. the way that Calvin or Luther was, in, was um, commenting on Romans and Galatians and Paul's interaction with Judaism uh, was, was fundamentally flawed because it didn't actually represent what the original uh, Jewish thinkers were thinking. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. uh, yeah, I, I, the way I would put it is say that um, there's no question that the Holy Spirit spoke through Romans and Galatians in particular mm-hmm. to Luther and Calvin and the other reformers and spoke to them meaningfully about uh, the, the ways in which the corrupt medieval Catholicism that they were that, that, mm-hmm. that, that their world was all about um, was wrong, and that uh, yes, there, it, this was legalism, and yes, it was not right, and mm-hmm. uh, their revelation uh, was very significant. The yeah. only place they got that wrong was to say that that is what those texts meant to Paul. Mm-hmm. In other words, Luther saw himself as Paul engaging yeah. with medieval Catholicism the same mm-hmm. way that Paul engaging with something called Judaism. Yeah, and that just 
Yeah, they got anachronistic. meaning wrong, but God spoke meaningfully to them through those texts. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Uh, by the way, uh, for anybody listening, watching, uh, Michael Bird, who is a uh, Australian biblical scholar, um, someone I really, really love reading. Um, he actually wrote a really great article a number of years ago uh, in in Jets, the Journal for Evangelical Theological Studies or something, uh, uh, and it was called. Uh, what is there between Minneapolis and St. Andrews, a third way in the Piper Wright debate? Because as uh, some of you may know, back in the day, uh, John Piper, in my opinion, foolishly decided to enter into that discussion, even though he had not no no ability to actually understand N.T. Wright, it would appear based on his book. And that might seem really mean, but it's pretty much a fact. Um, and so N.T. Uh, NT Wright's uh, you know, interaction was critiqued by by Piper, uh, and Michael Bird does a really great way of of basically just saying, "Hey, folks, N.T. Wright's just doing good exegesis," and and you know a lot of a lot of the debate right now is happening because there's different assumptions about the way we should do theology, uh, which would be another podcast for another time, I, I think. But uh, but I'll, I'm going to leave a, a, a link to uh, that article in the description here so you can check it out. It's a really great article just to kind of understand some of the reasons why there was debate. Um, in, in I think Steve and I both probably agree that it doesn't seem like there should have been as much of a debate uh, or so, so much controversy around that. Uh, well, you know, yeah, now, I mean, yeah we, we could debate that a long time, but I mean, just quickly on that. Um, one of the difficulties that that passionate uh, um, reformed folks have is a worry that the new perspective is saying that there is no such thing as legalism and that mm-hmm. uh, you know that, that, that uh, you can qualify for heaven through your own good deeds or whatever. In other words, uh, the things that the new perspective is saying that those were never things that Jews in the first century believed. Faithful Jews never believed yeah. that, right? Yeah, yeah. So that doesn't mean to say that what Luther and Calvin were saying was wrong. And it doesn't mean yeah. to say that, that anyone is embracing legalism today, not in the least. No yeah. one is suggesting good works get you to heaven or any of those mm-hmm. other caricatured phrases. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think isn't that a case of right ideas, wrong texts? <laughs> yeah, you yeah, have exactly, the right yeah. right theology, yeah. but oh, those are not the biblical texts to use uh, to get to get there. Uh, let's go back to your book, though. Uh, you know, I want to wrap up with uh, with this. Um, so you wrote your book. You're you're talking about the atonement. You're talking about the how and perhaps a little bit of the why as well mm-hmm. in there. Uh, yeah. And you're engaging with the new perspective. Um, you know, like. Tell us a little bit more about why you think thoughtful followers of Jesus uh, would would benefit from purchasing your book. Because I want to encourage everybody to purchase your book, but just from the author's lips, you know, what would you what would you say you're kind of bringing to the table that might help their value for the Bible, their value for following Jesus, their you know life of the mind, all the different aspects mm. of discipleship. Mm. Well, I guess I start with the health warning, Luke, which is that it is a PhD thesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I was writing it, um, you know, to a popular audience, it would be slightly different. So keep that in mind. It, you know, it might be a little dense in places, but um, essentially, where I was uh, ending up with mm-hmm. my master's dissertation was to say, okay, there seem to be two schools of thought on the question of how Jesus saves us. On the one hand, you've got the penal substitution concept which is that jesus takes the punishment that we deserve 
and as a result of Jesus being punished by God on the cross, we uh, we get off scot free. We get our you know get out of hell free card thanks to Jesus mm. taking that punishment for us. Uh, as opposed to a kaleidoscopic understanding, which says that the New Testament speaks about it in many many ways, many significant ways, such as ransom and redemption and healing and and such like, and. The, the, the atonement debate got stuck between those two poles. Either penal substitution is it, or most of it, or has to be it, versus actually it's a number of things in which penal substitution may feature, but it isn't wholly dependent upon it. Mm. That's where, where it was left, really, and where, where most people are at. And the more I thought about it, the more I, I wondered whether the new perspective had something to say about atonement. No one had brought the new perspective into conversation with atonement mm doctrine and i was thinking okay if we start from a standpoint that says basically um a faithful first century jew never thought that he would get to heaven by good works never thought that uh legalism was the way you 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 pleased god a a faithful first century jew always believed in habakkuk 2 4 the righteous shall live by faith or by faithfulness uh, that's why it's quoted three times in the New Testament because it, it was a constant throughout the throughout the canon. So mm. I was thinking, if if we start from a standpoint that says essentially the new perspective is about right, in that we should have had a more positive view of the first century environment, wouldn't it then be logical to suggest that uh, that the Jewish way of thinking has something to say to us about atonement? See, most most atonement ideas are completely ahistorical. They they mm. really bear no reliance upon the Jewish context at all. You get there a little bit with with ideas like sacrifice, but even even mm. that is in a different understanding of sacrifice compared to the the, the original Jewish understanding. So uh, they're all really ahistorical. So if we try to bring back in some Judaistic history to that. Um, how might that change things? And to cut a long mm. story short, the 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 way I uh, explore within that is a covenantal understanding and a, 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 a correlation between, for example, the the significance of the Exodus within the Old Testament framework and the fact that Jesus clearly chose an Exodus framework for his work at the cross. Obviously, uh, you know, Easter and Passover coinciding within within the calendar in that way and it's interesting that he chose passover with symbolism of exodus and mm-hmm. release and freedom uh, rather than what he could have done which would have been to have situated his death at the day of atonement mm, gotcha so that's those are some really um, great uh, ways to enhance our understanding of the Bible and our understanding of Jesus's work on the cross. That's really helpful. Well, that, this has been absolutely an honor, um, Steve, to have you sit down, uh, take to, say, take some time to uh, talk about theology, the Bible, and uh, your book too. So I want to encourage all of our listeners in. Uh, viewers to definitely pick up your book. Um, I think it's great. And, you know, I think to um, to actually maybe respond to the idea of uh, it being dense or thick, uh, I, I think, you know, it's good, actually, because um, I, I think your books 
very much a readable book. Um, you know, don't be scared of footnotes to anybody out there. Uh, but it's one of those books that too, I, what I've done with it um, is I've actually re- read sections at, at times. So slowly at sections as I'm just thinking about the atonement, because I've, I find that to be the most, one of the most fascinating things about your book is that there's not a lot of books out there, as you noted, uh, and by not a lot, I mean, there are none that I know of that are interacting with the new perspective and doing, th- uh, theology around the atonement. Um, in fact, you know, I, I could see your book sparking a lot of that because it is a really fascinating uh, subject to, to talk about. So, so thank you so much for joining us um, and uh, taking the time to, to be a part of this podcast. I really appreciate it, Steve. Thanks, Luke. It's lovely to chat to you, and I look forward to uh, seeing you soon as, as soon as this um, crisis is over. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>